This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 29th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Marco Rubio is distinguishing himself from his likely GOP opponents for president. How? By calling for several NSA surveillance powers to be extended permanently. Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, explains why the debate over these powers has really barely begun. So Rubio, in a recent op-ed, went beyond merely calling for a straight reauthorization of the three uh, provisions of the Patriot Act that are due to sunset, uh, only one of which is really uh, super controversial. That's the 215 authority under which uh, the bulk collection of American telephone records has been taking place. Uh, Lots of Republicans think we should just reauthorize that authority without reform. Rubio is now going further in saying uh, that authority should be made permanent, or all those authorities should be made permanent, um, which is to say not just that he opposes a particular reform proposal, um, but essentially thinks we shouldn't, in the wake of the Snowden revelations, even be discussing really whether reform is needed, which seems to me like a, a very difficult to defend position. Um, you know, in, in practice, you know, it's hard to get anything through Congress. The fact of these sunsets is is really the thing that is forcing Congress to do something about these authorities, even if it's just to deliberate and reauthorize them. Uh, that action is being prompted by the sunset. Um, so, to to suggest that it, uh, it be removed, that these authorities be made permanent, is really to say debate should end. Now, uh, Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers, uh, Republican from Washington, this is from National Journal, she said, I voted for the Patriot Act, but also believed it was very important that there was the expiration of the Patriot Act and the provisions that would ensure that we as members of Congress could analyze it uh, a few years down the road. And I think that... that uh has not necessarily panned out in previous debates. What has in practice happened in past reauthorizations is that there's not much debate, and then at the very last minute, uh, maybe there's a a quick uh, few hours of debate, but then everything has to be rushed through because, well, of course, we can't let these authorities expire, even though uh, there's perhaps not that much evidence they're being uh, used that much. I mean, it's it's worth noting, there are three expiring authorities. One is the so-called lone wolf authority uh, that allows uh, targeting with intelligence authorities of uh, lone wolf terrorists not affiliated with the terror group. That's actually never been used. Uh, So it's hard to say that that, you know, is proven to be an essential authority. And we also don't know what it would look like when it was used. So uh, also hard to say it should be made permanent. The roving wiretap authority uh, has allowing uh, agents to do wiretaps that rove across different uh, accounts or uh, email addresses. Uh, there are tweaks to make there. Uh, it allows technically the targeting of accounts when you don't know the identity of uh, the, the person involved. So neither the target nor the facility or account uh, being wiretapped has to be specified. Um, they can sort of say, well, we want a warrant for this email account and any other email account we think that same unknown person uses. It obviously uh, stretches the boundaries of uh, in Fourth Amendment terms we call particularity. And then, of course, this 215 authority. And what is really almost astonishing is that since the Snowden revelations, we've actually had an impressive degree of transparency about this one telephone program, the bulk database of Americans' telephone records. And it's very clear that there were some initial claims made about how this had been used in 
uh, first dozens and then, well, maybe a dozen cases and had been essential in disrupting terror activities. And the Privacy and Civil Liberties, Liberties Oversight Board did a thorough investigation and found that essentially all of those were, were false, that um, in every case they claimed it had been, with one possible exception involving financing, that uh, every time they claimed it had been essential, in fact, it was just duplicating information that the FBI had already gotten with traditional targeted authorities. And yet, somehow, you keep hearing defenders of this talking about this essential and vital program um, in, in the face of the weight of, the weight of evidence that this is just not the case. And it would be a lot easier to take more seriously uh, those who are saying, well, we need to sometimes accept a little more intrusion and make some trade-offs in privacy because it's necessary to keep us safe, if they didn't keep saying the same thing, even when those claims have been proven false about as conclusively as you could wish for them to be. And it's particularly cynical and, to my mind, a little bit insulting and offensive that you hear uh, folks like Rubio and, and, and many others on the Hill invoking whatever boogeyman of the day, whatever horrific thing has just happened somewhere around the world as the justification for this particular program when, I mean, even just a moment of reflection should make it clear that, that it can't be um, that relevant to this particular investigation or fight. So, oh, Charlie Heb the Charlie Hebdo attack show, we need, I mean, not just that we need surveillance authorities, which of course we, we do around the world, but we need this domestic telephone program. Ah, oh, the threat of ISIS shows we need this domestic telephone program. I mean, you know, it, it, it's hard to imagine a type of threat um, that it would be more irrelevant to a bulk database of Americans' domestic telephone records. Jared Polis, a Democratic representative, said, if Senator Rubio believes that millions of innocent Americans should be subject to intrusive and unconstitutional government surveillance, surely he would have no objection to the government monitoring his own actions and conversations. Maybe after his 2016 strategy documents are accidentally caught up in a government data grab, he'll rethink the use of mass surveillance. Well, you know, there's precedent. Uh, I think, uh, it, you know, there's, there is the, you know, the, the trope, of course, well, if you have nothing to hide and uh, you, have, you have nothing to fear. Um, and of course, almost any, everyone... Uh, has something to hide, especially if, if you're not the one who gets to decide what is uh, what is harmful information or what is what is guilty information. Um, I mean, if you look back to the '60s and '70s, uh, one of the you know, perhaps the most famous use of uh, illegal FBI wiretaps was to harass dissidents, uh, and uh, famously Martin Luther King, but. Part of what came out of those wiretaps was a lot of political intelligence. Supposedly, Lyndon Johnson complained that he had to stay up late listening to the King wiretaps, the Martin Luther King wiretaps, not because he was wanted to listen to King's extramarital affairs, but because uh, the calls King was having with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference were useful political intelligence that gave Johnson an advantage in maneuvering the Democratic National Convention. Um, we see the same thing with wiretaps of Supreme Court justices, uh, you know, uh, people in cabinet departments. Uh, JFK famously used uh, intelligence from a initially legitimate investigation into bribery um, to guide him in negotiations with Congress. It's not the big, sexy, uh, sort of big brother privacy invasion form of surveillance abuse, uh, but it is, you know, contrary to the spirit of democracy where the political battlefield, the realm of political debate is tilted by the fact that one side, uh, you know, essentially knows what the other side 
is planning. It's not to say, you know, we know that that's, that's happening again, but it's, just, it's worth remembering that there is a, a wide range of ways information like this, including just metadata about who a politician is calling, who their donors might be, for example, or who they might be trying to court as donors, um, that can be extremely useful to someone in a position of political power if they decide they're willing to go there. That's essentially Marco Rubio uh, on NSA surveillance, but uh, he is likely to r uh, run for president. What do his likely Republican opponents, where are they on uh, this issue? I think it's, I think it's clear that part of what's going on here uh, is that Rubio wants to distinguish himself from Rand Paul and uh, Ted Cruz, both of whom voted for the USA Freedom Act, uh, NSA uh, reform package. Um, Rand Paul has gone further and seems to be staking out a position that he wants to oppose, uh, as he sometimes says, reauthorization of the Patriot Act, um, meaning, again, these expiring three provisions. Uh, it, I think that you know that sounds great. Let the Patriot Act expire, but of course, again, it's not really much uh, much of the Patriot Act. It's um, this one controversial provision and two others that are not used that much, uh, or in one case at all. And the you know the worry I have about that is I think I think there is a contingent among civil libertarians who who hear that argument and say, okay, great, that's all we need to do. Just let these authorities expire. And problem solved, at least with respect to the 215 authority that's used for these uh, bulk, bulk telephone records. Um, and the problem there is that what we see over time is that the intelligence agencies are very canny about playing a kind of shell game. So there are cases uh, that we've learned about from inspector general reports where they go to the court for a 215 order for, it seems like, probably journalists' uh, records, metadata records. And the court says, no, on First Amendment grounds, we think this is, you don't really have enough of a good reason to get this, and uh, we should be more cautious when dealing with the press because of the First Amendment issues involved. And they shrug and say, okay. They go and get a national security letter for the same exact information. National security letters issued by the tens of thousands do not require judicial authorization, allow many of the same kinds of records to be obtained, and they've shown they're happy to substitute when they, uh, when they get. In fact, national security letters are so useful that for the first few years after this 2 to 15 authority was, uh, was passed, they didn't use that authority at all. They, they had national security letters. In fact, the very first use of 215 was because an FBI supervisor said, gosh, we haven't used this. Congress is going to be asking whether they should reauthorize it. Well, we'd better use it so we can tell them we need it, um, which I think is, is, is telling and a little disturbing. That, it's, that, a little, it's a bit like spending all of your budget so you can request more the next year. It is, it, is, it is very much like the spending your, your – your, your, well, uh, the, the budget, I suppose, of other people's uh, uh, electronic privacy. And – uh, you know, we see the same thing with respect to the other now discontinued, at least domestically, bulk program. There was a bulk internet metadata collection program that uh, was going on until 2011, probably continues in some form uh, overseas. You can collect a lot of that information off international cable switches or undersea cables. Uh, and they used the 214 authority, which also does not expire, in order to collect bulk internet metadata. Uh, and you know, I think there's a, a case to be made that you could you could find a way to use that same authority, which is slightly different, uh, to continue collecting phone information in bulk. Uh, the, the 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 so the trouble here is because only a few of these authorities expire. Um, 
not that much necessarily changes if you let them expire. There are other ways they can fill those gaps. It's worth noting that when people talk about the Patriot Act sunsetting, they are just referring to three provisions. The rest of the law continues into for however long. That, that's right. I mean, journalists at least used to be a little bit more careful about this than politicians and try and clarify that it was just these three provisions. But now I increasingly see uh, as just, I guess, a shorthander because it takes too long to write out, um, you know, the debate leading up to the expiration of the Patriot Act. Well, no, the Patriot Act is many, many hundreds of pages long, and there's a very, very tiny uh, piece of it that sunsets. And indeed, some of the most uh, controversial, or at least maybe the ones that should be most controversial parts, which is to say the 214 so-called pen register authority that was used for bulk internet metadata and these national security letters, which don't even require judicial supervision, um, are permanent. Uh, those don't expire. And so, and, you know, and a lot of other parts of the Patriot Act that probably do things that are um, not harmful or, or, or indeed even good. Um, so that's fine. But, uh, but anyone who is reading uh, sort of this lazy journalism and thinking, well, at least the Patriot Act expires uh, this summer. It's unfortunately not the case. All right. And it, it's also worth noting when, when uh, we are promised debate on certain provisions, surveillance uh, authorities, we almost never get it. And if we do get it, it is rushed, it is short, and it's around Christmas. Yeah, that's right. And you know, there, was a, there was actually an article by uh, Chris Mooney, a, a liberal journalist, a couple of years ago, making the case, uh, I think a moderately compelling case, that in fact sunset provisions allow worse law to get passed because Congress looks at a, looks at a bill, says, "Well, we're not sure about this. This might not be a good idea. It might not be necessary. It could backfire." Um, but we'll put a sunset on it, so we'll have to debate it. And then Congress will pass legislation that they otherwise maybe wouldn't, uh, reassured that at least the sunset will force another debate, and then, as inevitably happens, a couple of years pass, and that debate ends up not being very substantial at all. So that may be a reason, kind of prospectively looking at totally new legislation, to say, maybe don't put too much stock in sunsets. The actual subsequent debate uh, is going to be pretty attenuated, and the reauthorizations are going to become increasingly automatic. Uh, I think that th there's a case to be made for that. Though when you're talking about legislation that already passed uh, a little bit too quickly, um, that probably shouldn't have, uh, then those even that thin debate is sort of all you're, all you're getting. And I think this year, unlike in years past, in the context of the Snowden revelations and, uh, and, and indeed some of the government's voluntary disclosures about these programs, we, we at least have a chance to finally get a marginally more robust debate. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.